0: Well, you know what I really want to talk about I today?
1: Mean, what, what do you really want to talk about?
0: The new books network.
1: Oh, you want to do the shameless self promotion bit, I, don't you?
0: I do. Cause we just got released our first, uh, sociology podcast book.
1: And, and how, how, how's that? Tell us about this.
0: Well, um, so we're part of the new books network. Um,
1: new books, There
0: we go. Yeah. And, uh, we're going to be reviewing books alongside. Sounds like he has like seventy other channels. Um, yeah, he doesn't have
1: seventy. Uh, I don't think they're like they're not all active yet. but oh, okay. He's, they're they're activating.
0: So. Activating seventy channels. Yeah. Currently, maybe twenty channels are going right now. Yeah. But anyway, the more important thing <clears throat> is that we our channel is going. Um, yes.
1: Newbooksinsociology.com.
0: Yes. Given our success and the other podcasts, we've been asked to review sociology books. Um, and this week, we start with Teresa Gallen's, uh new book on homeless recyclers in San Francisco, which I did last week, and when it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So should sure take a I, listen to it.
1: I started listening to it. I didn't make it all the way through, but I started listening to it. It sounds um, familiar.
0: Ah, yeah, it should, <laughs> should. I mean, you shouldn't really have to listen to it all. It's more kind of background music. I mean, I almost feel like we should even have like a posting about how you should listen to a podcast, you know, like it
1: how to listen to a podcast. Yeah. That's a good idea, because I think a lot of people don't know. Yeah. People who don't listen to podcasts obviously don't know. And they're like, I don't understand this podcasting thing. What you know, what's it what's it good for?
0: Like, I'm staring at my computer. There's nothing going on. I'm listening to the audio. And I, that's exactly you know. what people do. They yeah. go to, like that's I remember, Doug, when we first
1: did this podcast. He's like, I don't get it. It was because the first episode of this podcast was like an hour and a half long or some crazy thing like that. Yeah. And he's like, I don't understand. I went to my browser. I hit play. And then like, then what? Like, what do I do? Am I just supposed to sit here hunched over my laptop listening? I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not how you use podcasting. I know. But I saw it's him afterwards. Easy. You're supposed to use your imagination. It's like <laughs> yeah.
2: radio.
0: He was like pissed. He was like, man, an hour and a half of my day last yeah. Monday, I spent listening <laughs> to you guys And I could do nothing else. Happen.
1: <laughs> that's the whole that's the whole point of podcasts you know you can like uh you take it with you so like i listen to podcasts like while i do the dishes mowing the yard while i'm running while i'm you know driving to and from work you know i depending on the work i'm doing sometimes i can listen while i'm working if i'm not yeah. there are certain tasks that are sort of tedious and not yeah. where words don't interfere and then they're you know like yeah. writing you can't write and listen no, to can't
0: a write. i washing dishes folding laundry and running i think are my ideal podcast
2: Actually,
0: I know. I keep the house quite clean just by just
2: thanks to, to all podcasts, thanks to NPR. Yeah. I know that's you and what, I listen. That's what new books in sociology will do for you. It will help you clean your house.
0: Yeah, that's, that's
3: right.
2: our selling point.
0: That's right. Exactly. Jesse, Chris, do you
3: listen to podcasts to edit them? That's it. Often you
1: don't actually listen to your to, to other podcasts.
3: I listen to podcasts when I'm made aware of certain podcasts, but like specific I have episodes. Specific episodes. I don't have anything I listen to on a regular basis.
2: Yeah, I don't even listen to our podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of out of the. I'm, I'm behind the times. I I, I don't think, tweet. Yeah. I don't listen to podcasts.
1: Yeah, but you 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 use Facebook though, and you post stuff on that. You mean you don't tweet? I do.
2: I'm on the Face Tubes. So that's you're on Facebook my a lot. Technology. I am. Well. To be fair it's only because it's so easy to procrastinate
1: what to be on by being on face well podcasts are excellent actually i guess what we're saying is that podcasts aren't excellent for procrastinating because you can do other
3: things
0: yeah exactly it's it's, it's there you go. Oh, that's you. my problem i mean,
3: that's
0: your own we got a response last week on, a, on, a, on the blog. Somebody wrote a comment.
1: Yeah, and I saw they you. They didn't leave us an audio clip of Glenn Beck.
2: <laughs> yeah, who did that?
3: <laughs>
2: I have no idea. It was awesome, though.
1: I think it was Arturo. It had to have been. It, it was me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I thought we had a real honest-to-goodness caller. I know.
3: Don't admit it.
2: You're making me look desperate.
3: Now all the stuff that I was going to do is going to look suspect. <laughs> so we, we, did get, we did get
2: but well, we oh, did yeah. get fun, yeah. real
3: we did get a wrong
1: number message last week too. I didn't forward that on cuz it was obvious it was a We should have responded message. to that. Yeah, and and I think it was like not only a wrong message, it was like a pocket dial wrong message or something cuz it was like two people speaking in Spanish like away from the phone and that's all you could hear for like 30 seconds and then it hung up. So, so please, please, we desperately need a real call, obviously, six one two four two four agio
0: But we had a comment from Tom about our discussion about global warming, and he says, I think it's important to recognize that conservatives or libertarians often do have plenty of trust in science in certain areas, NASA or defense technologies, for example. Rather than the skepticism of global warming being driven by a lack of trust in science or academia, I think that conservative politicians and media generate mistrust in science based on political expedience. Global warming is not a problem that lends itself to conservative solutions. Self-regulation in the market and realistic solutions to global warming will inevitably harm powerful backers of conservative politicians, big cattle business to oil industry, etc. So basically, when we were talking about about, uh, global warming, he goes on talking about how You know, um, it's less a challenge of science, but more a framing of science in a way that's conducive to certain conservative ideologies, i.e. mainly that we don't want government to intervene in the marketplace. Um, I guess by the same hand, there might be other situations in which liberals use science in a way that frames intervention in the marketplace as a good thing, Um, which I think is a good point. I mean, it's less an attack on science, but more of just... We want science to say a certain thing, and when it doesn't, we don't like it.
1: Here's here's a, a way we could take that and run with it, maybe. Because um, I, I was thinking about this, too. Um, we were talking about, uh, you know, sort of how you know global warming is fact, like Jesse, you were saying. Of course it's a fact. You know, this isn't something that you can just make up. And I was thinking about how do you know that? You have to trust science and the institutions and stuff. And I was thinking about the um, sort of big current events going on, Right there's the uh, there stuff going on there's a couple
0: things going on yeah there's true. a lot
1: going on but two in particular this particular point seemed to come home one was the the sort of you know nuclear situation in japan and then the other being the uh, you know bombing or no fly zone or whatever the hell in in libya right and in both cases i found myself thinking back to that conversation like especially the 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 nuclear power situation right mm-hmm. because this is one of those things where depending on who you listen, you know, I've read, you know, you you see the obvious anti-nuclear activists coming out right away, comparing this to Chernobyl, saying that this is just proof that this is just horrible, deadly technology that we should have nothing to do with. And then uh, you, you see sort of the counter opinion, which is that, you know, actually considering all the, all the qualifications on this, this was an, an aging power plant. This was like, for some reason, built on the coast of the country, most likely to have uh, earthquakes like Japan has more earthquakes than anyone else. And this is probably not wise. And and then you look at like all the different levels of backup plans that were exhausted, you know, like um, because of the combination of the earthquake and the tsunami and everything like that. And then still and, and still like it's not clear, like. You know every you know that that this is actually going to be a huge catastrophe, like this could you know ima- i mean and it's not like um as we saw last year, it's not like um digging for oil is free of human and environmental catastrophe either, or coal for that matter. you know um I read uh George what's his name George Mon- Monbiot? Do you know how to say that? he's a big big lefty british columnist guy but anyway i mean big big environmentalist and he's sort of written a few things that i saw passed around the internet sort of coming out saying you know this has made me more in favor of nuclear power as opposed to opposed because you know when coal works well it kills way more people than you know nuclear power when it goes very very when 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 like the worst catastrophe imaginable like this happens you know um, but but anyway, my point in, in all of this is that this is another case where it's like this is really complicated stuff, mm-hmm. like to understand how nuclear power works, what the trade offs are, what the precautions are, whether or not they're adequate. These are things that lifetime, a lifetime of training and um, education really is what you need to equip you to understand these issues and have a real coherent, educated opinion on them, you know, yet. You know, we're all expected to have opinions on it, and and we all do, and we, we argue about it as if we know what we're talking about. And it's it's just a really, you know, I mean, I just found myself wrestling with this while listening to the news every day about the
2: latest. I'd comment, but I don't have a lifetime of training and knowledge on the subject, so it's probably better that I don't.
0: <laughs> well, I think, like, your comment part <laughs> partly... <laughs> speaks to like just the unknown of variables and i think this almost goes back to what our discussion about science a few weeks back that like science is really great when you have really concrete defined variables and you have all the information but here we don't have all the information uh a because they're not releasing all the information but b they probably just don't know the extent of the damage they can't predict earthquakes and everything seems absurd in hindsight um but really like on as you're discovering things it's a really unstable scientific environment to collect information you don't know what one variable leads to the next and i think that's like like critics of global warming that's where i kind of give them a little bit of credit in saying that listen like global warming is a huge phenomenon and and would, do we really know that the variation in temperatures is really significant given all the variation that we see throughout history do we really have concrete data uh... to say that this variation is beyond what we would normally see across a thousand years or two thousand years or twenty thousand years and I, i don't know i mean it seems like we do have that information now but at the early periods people were just saying well look at the ice caps they're melting and look you know now it's getting hotter than it was last summer Like, i think um science always seems much clearer after an event has passed uh, and we've had time to study it and everything seems really intuitive. There's almost like, wow, those idiots prior to those periods just didn't really understand things. But at the actual moment, science is not as clear uh, about what it's pointing to or not pointing to. I don't know if that's what you're getting at, John.
3: Well, that seems to me to be the way that science should work in this case. that Our understanding of science is torn between these two... These, these two poles. One is that science is the way in which we discuss things that should be absolute or should be true. That science is the way you get to truth and the way truth is represented, which is what brought it face-to-face with religion for the last several hundred years or so. But it's still happening today in a relatively unchanged manner. But also that science, if, if you look at how scientists think about their own work and some of the sociology that we've done on that, is increasingly comfortable with uncertainty as a way to get towards that truth. That uncertainty is a a really crucial part of not only the scientific method, but just thinking through what you're trying to do. And it it sounds to me, Arturo, like the comment you made was was right at the center of between those two points, that on the one hand, we should be exact about this, and science (laughs) should speak with authority. On the other hand, it's an enormous, complex thing, and science knows that it can't do that. So it's not as authoritative as maybe one would like to be, yeah, and there's a second point that in response to what John was talking about, which is my my takeaway from the 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 stuff going on in Japan is more that it may not take a lifetime of knowledge to competently discuss what's going on over there, to discuss it as an expert, of course it would, but to to just have a a legitimate perspective on it, but it points out how for the most part no one really keeps the basics of science that they learned through at least the high school level clear yeah. after they graduate and that you yeah. still have to be reminded oh what, you know, these very key core things to, to understanding science generally today like the theory of evolution and what radiation is all about and these kind of things. People... It's it's never fresh.
1: (laughs) No, I actually I completely agree with that because and I I don't even believe what I was saying because I actually don't think that's true. You know, I mean, obviously, like we couldn't do this podcast if I thought that was true because none of us are experts on almost any of the things we talk about. But we find a way to talk about them, and I like to think that we're somewhat informed, right? We don't just pull stuff out of the air, right? It's not just a matter of convenience. Like you get up to speed and then you do the best you can. But like you know, the science thing, (laughs) this this is. Tell me if I'm the only one on this, because I mean, maybe this is a bit of a tangent going into education, but you brought up education and I don't remember much of what I learned in high school either. And I was a good student, right? I got A's in all these classes. And, sure I still, did, and I still don't actually remember a lot. Most of what I, most of what I actually know well is because, and ma- you know, maybe this is because I had that background knowledge that I'd forgotten, and then I was able to sort of learn on my own, which is how it should be, right? I can read around a little bit and learn up, learn up, do some learning on how these <laughs> things work, right?
2: Learn yourself but, up a little.
1: <laughs> but I know I'm not the only one who feels sometimes like, you know, you get all this opportunity to learn specialized knowledge and learn like the the basics of science and things that you you don't care about when you're 15 because when you're 15 you're trying to learn how to be a person you know you're trying to learn how to like have social relationships and and be who you are and become and you you don't you don't care about the the you know how how nuclear power works necessarily, it's only when you're older that you don't have the time to do any of that stuff. You don't have the time to go back to school and learn. You've already gotten your education, so it's not like there is plentiful state funding for you to go back and get another education because you're now you're curious on what they tried to tell you then. Like, just because you
3: wasted there, all those years in theater <laughs> in high school instead of studying science <laughs> <laughs> is not our fault. Yeah, I
2: thought you were a good student, John. <laughs> no, I mean, story I, has no, a few it's accident. It. I, I mean, what I'm you're just
3: saying. But yeah, this is a problem with with edu- this is a big issue with actually, education. I mean, speaking of podcasts, the the president of my alma mater was on a an NPR podcast out of North Carolina recently, and his whole perspective is that American high schools, the American high school system, and this would be a big change of subject so we can not go this road if we want to. But the American high school system has essentially failed in that anything it tried to do, anything it was set up to do to prepare people for what comes next, however that's defined, it's not working. And there's a bunch of problems for that, for, for explaining that, but he he moves towards supporting a, a a new way of doing high school that's probably closer to what they do in Europe where The one problem that we have in high schools is we pretend as though everyone coming into high school, for the most part, is going to college afterwards, despite a lot of evidence suggesting that that's not true. And then they started tracking people and setting up different tracks in certain high schools, but definitely not across the board, um, to guide people towards either the college preparation route or the vocational technical route. But they did that in such a half-assed way that all the privilege, all the resources go to the college prep route and and any other direction doesn't really get respected, looks worse, doesn't represent you as well in the job market and so on and so forth. So he's trying to bring it to a point of you know, some people are ready for college at 15 or 16 and they should be able to go. Some people aren't ready for college until their early 20s and they should be able to do it then. There should be other options that the system can prepare you for or put you into But again, this is getting us off target, maybe.
0: Yeah, see, I don't know about that. I feel like the purpose of high schools was really just to constrain the labor market to prevent from young people to entering the labor market too early. You know, it came about in the 1930s. And so, you know, you had mass unemployment and you say kids can't work and they have to go to this institution. And, you know, I mean, like, I mean, part of your comment, Chris, is saying that like this universalistic vision of education is that like everybody that goes into this institution will come out a certain way well these educational institutions have never existed as um uh something that is always accessible by the entire spectrum of the population so it's it's almost absurd to accept to expect um certain outputs just because you make more of these institutions um but i I agree but i think uh High schools, I think their primary function is almost babysitting function or socialization functioning, and there's some education that goes behind it, um, but um, it, it's most of those kids are worried about so many other things that I don't think it's necessarily like a place where you uh, learn to get a certain skill set, but at the same time, I feel like that's what college is an opportunity for, and just the community colleges in the United States. I think that's kind of a, a unique thing. That the u.s does that i don't think any other country really does It's just the number of community colleges and this kind of goes back to what you're saying john about like adult education i almost feel like there is a lot of access for adults to go back and take classes in nuclear physics if they wanted to um rather i mean rather cheaply you know like i mean not super cheap but you know maybe 50 60 per unit i think at the sac community college that's nearby here so i don't know it's like at the one hand, I see that like high schools are are not are, – are complete failures if we see it as like institutions that just educate the populace uh, to a certain level. But at the other hand, I do think it works as a gate- gateway mechanism, and there are, are are opportunities for young people if they wanted to get it more educated.
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it sort of sounds like you're saying the latent functions of high school are working really well, but the manifest functions – Yes are out of the picture completely (laughs) yeah Yeah.
0: i know there's some high school teachers like well they're not listening
2: to
3: this
0: podcast
1: that's the kind of language we need more of in this podcast
2: (laughs) i know i felt so educated there for a second
3: (laughs) (laughs) and i totally killed the conversation by making that (laughs) point too
1: i apologize so that's your job
2: i know i know you're Crowd on territory. Next thing you're gonna start giving uh stride dogmatic
1: mark.
0: So what are your thoughts about Libya, Jesse?
2: It's a good question. Um it's a complex situation. I you know, I don't know where you were at in the conversation. Thank you. I, know. I don't know where you're at in the conversation. Is it complicated? But,
0: uh, is it a complicated situation? I, <laughs> sorry, hope, sorry. I hope you die. <laughs> uh, Do we need to understand you know, the context it, of the I situation? Didn't... Is that what's going on?
3: Uh, well, I really missed the <laughs> passive aggressiveness of the
1: sociology
2: improv <laughs> <laughs> We're, okay, yeah. We're way out of sync, too. Oh.
1: This is bizarre. We're way out of sync. Anyway. Oh, are we? Silence, and then Jesse uh, talks. Three, two, one.
2: Okay. My Olivia take. Uh, I mean, obviously, what's going on there is not pleasant. Um, I'm fairly against the invasion, and by fairly, I mean pretty much completely. Um, Or bombing. I guess it's not an invasion yet. Uh, But I read this really good piece the other day on this subject by uh, Glenn Greenwald. He's this kind of commentator. I've I've got a total crush on him, so I love everything he writes. But... uh, He made this good point because a lot of people um, are sort of giving the same defense of Libya as they eventually came to give the defense of the Iraq and Afghanistan invasions. Um, In that, if you are opposed to the bombing campaign, then you don't care about the Libyan people, right? Like, oh, you're fine with them being oppressed by this horrible dictator if you're not for this bombing. Um, which of course is, I mean, untrue for scores and scores of reasons, uh, but the most is that you could point to at least a dozen other active dictatorships in the world right now who are doing the same, almost exactly the same thing, um, but are met with either mild criticisms from us or receive large amounts of funding from us because they happen to be convenient allies. Can I, um, can I, so can I, oh.
0: Can I raise one point to that, though? I mean, like, I've been hearing that critique, and I was wondering, like, is the only justifiable American action one in which we can duplicate in every other similar situation? Because, I mean, there's, like, what, 35 active civil wars going on in the the world right now. And if the United States is going to intervene in one of them, does it have to, by that same logic, intervene in all 35 at the same time? And is that the threshold— of justification is that the the litmus test that has to pass is like anything that we're going to do we have to do it in every situation
2: no uh, that wasn't what i was trying to say at all what i was trying to say is it's such a it's cynical and clearly manipulative argument to like, try to claim that you know you're not you don't believe in the Libyan people or humanitarian ideals. if you don't support this, because the reason we're doing this to Libya is not to free the Libyan people. It's because they happen to be a resource-rich country and a key uh, place for us, right? I mean, the Sudan has been a far worse situation for far longer, and we have no interest in going in there. Not too coincidentally, the Sudan doesn't have anything we're interested in, right? Um, and so I'm definitely not advocating that we have to intervene in all 35 ongoing civil conflicts in the world. Um, and in fact, I'd probably be close to the spectrum of saying we should uh, intervene in zero ongoing conflicts. Um, but I'm just saying, like, I can't, I, I can't stand these kind of super cynical manipulative arguments that come out every time this kind of thing happens. Like, this is some great humanitarian act, and that the people who are opposed to it are, are some sort of, like, morally deficient peoples that need not be paid attention to. Where,
1: I mean, uh, where are you hearing that? I mean, I, 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 I haven't, I mean, I, I mean, maybe I've seen a little bit of that. I haven't seen a lot of that, you know. And, I mean, there's been quite a lot of disagreement, I think, among the liberal left region of the spectrum on this, and I haven't seen a lot of that.
2: It's oh, kind of... that's more stuff I've seen in the. Oh, sorry. I mean, it's on you, but really quick, just answer that. The, there, there was some like um, I believe like op eds and like the Washington Post and I think even the New York Times kind of made versions of that argument that like if you're opposed to bombing Libya, you don't support the Libyan people and you like dictators or something. I,
1: I mean, I guess I guess my point is if that's really going on, that's that's obviously horrible, and none of the four of us here think that that's. That's justified. On the other hand, I don't find it. I mean, I, the, the interesting questions to me, though, are: assume that that assume everyone's motives are are pure, right? We all we're all not not just interested in you know preserving U.S. influence abroad, and we actually care about the fact that you know people should be able to uh, you know not live under the thumb of brutal dictators. Like, but like there there's given that, right? There are still like real. Difficult issues here, like I mean, uh, all right. So, like, we we're talking about intervention, right? And whether or not we should intervene in any of the 35, or are we, did we get that? Is that a real number? Or did we just, I, I kind of came up with okay. that one, yeah. All right, sounds so, good though, doesn't it? Yeah,
3: and we're not going to intervene <laughs> not in if any the answer of, is three, <laughs> I, I was going to say 54, <laughs> then I thought that might be too many, so so, so let's
0: so let's
1: just say <laughs> so let's just say that we're not going to intervene in any of our arturo's ongoing civil <laughs> conflicts and the, the, like there's like these complicated things like when uh, okay so if,
0: i just don't think the justification should be like oh we'll go in here but we won't go in there like we can't always go to every other countries like not to sound like a neocon but like i think it's okay for the united states to occasionally intervene and part of those motivations are that it's a strategic reason for it to intervene. I mean, I think that makes sense. It's like
3: that case is a little bit weak with Libya, though, because Libya, I, I, Gaddafi's been changing his position slowly over the last 10 years. And John is probably pissed that he was about to make his point when we jumped in. But um, Libya has given the West, if you want to term it that way, ample opportunity to do something like this. And we flirted with it a lot in the 80s. And if you're going to make the we're doing this for strategic argument reasons for it now, you have to answer why we haven't done it in the last 30 years because it's not like it wasn't there.
0: I know, but I think the other uh, revolts or mass movements that are occurring, like if somebody like Gaddafi, which albeit he's been helping us with you know terrorism in North Africa, uh, is by no means a very popular dictatorship with the American Uh, establishment if he starts murdering people at the site of uprisings um, and we don't do anything then that's just going to kind of send a signal that like well if of all the tools that a dictator has to prevent themselves being overthrown um, mass killing is part of one of those tools because apparently the international community will just sanction you and and you know wave their fingers at you but they're actually not going to do anything but if it does do something. I think it sends kind of a message. I, know, I don't know if I'm just sounding too much like – I've been listening to conservative radio too much. But that makes sense to <laughs> no, me. It's uh, like, you're, but you're, my that point also makes hands, sense with though, what
3: Jesse was saying. Yeah, Because there's
2: Jesse. plenty of other dictators like mass slaughtering their people who we don't – who we just say like eh. – Hey guys, maybe you should stop that. You know, like we're not you know, we're not gonna do anything, but let's let's all calm down. But like all of a sudden, there's this one country where we're like, oh, we have to intervene, or else the people will die. You know, I
1: I mean I I agree. Here's here there's a distinction here that should bother us. More Americans should be bothered by this, right? At the same time, I, I like you know. It's like people who say, well, I'm not going to give money to this charity because there are all those other deserving ones out there, too. And if I can't help them all, I won't give to anything. Yes. Or I'm not going to, you know, you can't do that. Or like, well, we shouldn't help the poor people in this city just because we can because there's still all these poor people in other cities. It's like, no, you, when you can do something, you should do something, yeah, but, even if it's not everything, you know, the poor
3: people in
2: that city is that weird? <laughs> We're not doing this to help the Libyan people. Like, the Libyan people are a convenient justification for what we're doing.
3: Well, okay. Would you say helping the Libyan people is a latent or a manifest function? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
2: I would say helping the people of Libya is a thin justification function. I I just don't think this was like a
0: a well-planned thing, though. I don't think it was like, well, this is finally we get rid of Qaddafi, we're finally going to get access to his oil. I, I think this is a complete mess. And I think it was like, you know, the Arab Council voting that intervention was probably needed. It was probably the international outcry. And it was like, you know, if you either act now or you don't act. I mean, and
3: can I ask a factual question? Just sure. did the Arab League or the African Union either or say anything about Qaddafi before this started?
0: not before it started uh but during I mean
3: before before the bombing yes okay i just missed that
0: well they said that, that for the first time ever they said that some kind of uh uh intervention by the international community was warranted not by the UN necessarily or the US but some kind of action to prevent you know the slaughter of civilians and that's what they that was like you know the first time ever that that organization that has ever come close to saying that an intervention by the west is warranted and this but, is the
3: arab league saying this yeah but that's interesting given the spread of problems in other countries well
0: it's also interesting because they didn't they didn't say that they were going to do anything about it and as soon as the bombings did start they automatically went back and said well you know we didn't think the u.s was going to send okay. that many missiles um and you're right like half of those guys are being protested right now so they're kind of in a difficult situation but i think there's like a the parameters like I was saying of the tools that they probably think that they can use, I mean, like the fact that Mubarak left Egypt um, just after protests is telling, right like why didn't he start shooting people um in a more kind of um more extreme way, you know because he partly knew that like he would lose his allies with the West you know as as a moderately um western country. you're putting something up here. Glenn, Glenn.
2: Oh, sorry. I was just sharing where I got this, this argument from. It wasn't meant to interrupt you.
0: Oh, oh, okay. Oh, so, so my 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 thing is like, I guess I believe that like by doing this action, it kind of sends a message. It's like, listen, if you have conflicts in your countries, you're gonna to have to deal with them. Um, but if you start killing too many people and it brings attention of everybody, you're gonna force us to do something. And I think there's a certain level of hypocrisy to that, because these guys probably are killing more people in their own countries. Um, but I kind of go with John's arguments, like if you can do something, and it's a sanctioned, why not do it? Um,
1: and, and then I guess here's the question that I have then, since like Jesse, you're saying, you know, opposed to the whole thing, this isn't, this isn't helping, like there's two questions, there's why are we doing this, and is this helpful at all anyway? Like, are we just wreaking havoc and destruction, or are we actually, like, um, by taking out um, specific strategic, thing, you know, resources that, that Gaddafi could use to do real damage, are we actually, are we doing a service to, um, th- to people, even if, you know, whatever our motivations are, right? Like, is, can, can you actually um, intervene in a, in, in a way that promotes peace and democracy um, with missiles and bombs, can you do that? Like, it sounds like there's like a a, like a theological point there, <laughs> like like <laughs> like on in principle opposition to that. That uh, you know, a lot of people share, and it's like, is that is that true? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's like that's the you know, there's there's a question of motivation, and there's a question of is what they're doing actually going to help. And then there's the, you know, then there's the issue Arturo brought up with, like, this sort of, like, from U.S., in terms of U.S. strategy, like, this is exactly the kind of thing that everyone's, like, the stereotype of Barack Obama. What is it? Like, you don't make decisions early. You kind of play your cards close to your chest. And then your tendency is to kind of, like go full force into a half-hearted solution right that's kind of what his mo has been yeah so like is this what that looks like in foreign policy and when this doesn't work then what you know like that's what everyone's sort of saying i think.
0: I thought what he did actually was quite smart i thought like if he had intervened early on um it would have just seen as like well here comes another american administration just cowboying it up uh going to another country that it doesn't need to but instead like waited until there was these outcries by the Arab even the Arab League was you know having an outcry about what was going on then it almost seems it's a slightly different context of the U.S. invading Iraq you know it's more like well everybody's giving us a hard time for not acting so I'm just going to go ahead and do it so I thought that was politically
3: yeah if the U.S. was going to do something he did it in the way that I would expect him to do it which was wait for international Justification and authority first, and then start, yeah, I mean whatever we were going to do, like the I I'm, started
0: bombing the day before the u s started sending the the missiles uh, and I'm
3: surprised France hasn't emerged as the clear leader on this because there's all this discussion in the u s press about the u s starting the attack but not bearing the brunt of it, and that the 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 general statement to the population that we weren't going to invest in this like we did in Iraq and Iraq and Afghanistan um and then who's going to actually lead it, and then NATO gets a hold of it. But there seemed to be this big bubble of attention on France that they would take the leadership role. And I heard these really interesting man-on-the-street-style interviews the day the the bombardment began with French citizens saying that they were really proud that they were acting. Yeah. Which was a total 180 from their perspective on the previous engagements in that region that Europe and the U.S. had been involved with. So i thought there was something interesting there but i'm also surprised that qaddafi hasn't been murdered yet yeah (laughs) internally so my perspective is suspect yeah so i really thought that was gonna happen by now did you guys chris i don't think i sent this to you because you weren't there
1: last time um no i'm kidding but the the interview with um is it benjamin barber I'm looking at you and at Arturo and Jesse because I sent it to you guys. And I know you read it. I know Benjamin Barber is. Yeah, he, he was like one of those people at the, the London School of Economics or whatever that was like closely connected to Gaddafi's son. And they had this like ongoing collaboration. And you know, Oh, I didn't like, know that. Interesting. Yeah, and they, there's a really, uh,
0: I should oh, Anthony. oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah,
1: um, but anyway, it, it was a really interesting interview with him a couple weeks ago. I mean, yeah. it was right after we recorded that. That's why I sent it to you, too.
0: Um, Do you feel like a fraud? Do you feel like you were taking advantage <laughs> of kind of
2: questions? Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, it was really sort of like, it was, it was interesting, and he gave uh, a very, both an interesting defense of what they were doing
3: he made some Godfather um, references, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: He's saying Gaddafi was his Fredo or something. <laughs> <sighs> no, yeah, see, I, I haven't.
1: I've never seen The Godfather, so what? I don't. I don't get. That.
3: Uh, Neither have I, uh, but I've seen enough people yeah. it that I
1: can. I th- it's not a that, problem. That's why. I, that's why I can't remember the Godfather comparison. I can't remember who it was because I haven't seen the movie to know what it was. But anyway, it was the, it was his he son.
2: Wasn't
1: Fredo. It was Gaddafi's son, and how? Um, yeah, there you go. Um, And how like, uh, you know, he was sort of open to reform and democratization and had been very vocal, vocally critical of his father and the way things were running for a long time. And then when he came out in defense of him, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, whenever that was, that was like the big moment where, you know, like he, you know, he sort of turned his back on on sort of democracy and all the reforms that he said he was for because he should be very much in favor of, of it. And you know, and his argument was that it was kind of like, is uh, it, was it Michael Corleone or yeah, yeah, oh, yeah who like yeah. you know was Pushed determined to get out, business. get out of the family business, but then when crisis happens, you got to run back to family. Yeah. And, you know, sort of the, the argument is that blood and then ties sort are of, important, yeah, and then sort of using that as an insight into the what's going on in Libya is that you know this, the, the the importance of tribal identities and 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 that this is a very fragile mix of volatile elements that Gaddafi has held in place and he basically outlined, like, no positive outcome of any of this. <laughs> you know,
2: like... So, I, I, I would say, if the Michael Corleone uh, allegory holds true, then Libya 2 will be awesome. Uh, <laughs> Libya 3, however, will, will be overdone. and not necessary.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So there's yeah. your positive
2: outcome.
0: <laughs> You'll you kind of wonder why they even made Libya 3, you know. It was kind of Exactly, uh, you don't wonder that.
3: Just trying to cash in.
0: <laughs> but the sequel is much much better than Libya one, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that.
3: There's a, another thing that kind of bugs me when people talk about this in in public discourse, and that's whenever people discuss these kind of crises, and other ones as well. There's a moral frame that they use to analyze it. There's a a political frame that they used to analyze it, but that political frame is always domesticated. It is to say, mm. when, when American media talks about what's going on in Libya or anywhere else in the region, they talk about it in a way that makes sense to the conversations we're having in the U.S. at the moment. But there's another dimension, another way to analyze it that never gets discussed, kind of going back to what John said before about nuclear physics, um, and that's the, the world of international relations and foreign policy. Which, institutionally, and in terms of how people make these kind of decisions, I think is really important. But there's such a poverty of awareness of that in most political discussions that it gets swept to the side. I mean, if you're looking at this in terms of, you know, kind of the straight-up politics of the matter, certain decisions become relevant and expected or dumb and unexpected in ways that the moral argument doesn't allow for. And I, I always wish the conversation would go to that point. Does that make any sense at all?
2: Yeah, I was going to say kind of related, but I guess maybe not as much now that you finish your thought. At first, I think it's going to be really related. But something I no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one hijacking the conversation. But I was going to say, too, part of the thing that always gets me about these kind of conversations is it always is uh, the first assumption is that the U.S. has the right to intervene wherever and whenever we please. And then the question is, is it wise, correct, smart, fiscally solvent, you know, what have you, to intervene. Um, but it's never, like, the, there's never even the question of, like, do we have the right to intervene in this sovereign country? We're on two um, sides of the
3: which, same coin. Because your your perspective was, does the U.S. have the right to intervene? My perspective would be, in, in the real politic of the situation, yes, for for reasons that no one talks about, the U.S. does have the authority to intervene, because in the world of foreign and international relations and how people think about these things in those fields, yeah, of course we do. Who's going to stop us? And it's not literally that thuggish, like, who's going to stop us? But the U.S. has been setting itself up since World War II as the people who intervene when they want to intervene, and if they want to intervene, they'll intervene. So stop being surprised by it. There's moral arguments against it, and they're very good. And there's political arguments against it that are very good. But it should always be the expected thing for the United States at this point in time. And that's not going to change anytime soon.
1: Yeah, and, here, and here's the interesting question. I mean, that, that I'm glad you came back and clarified that, because I was kind of wondering what you were getting at earlier. And I mean, I think, Fair here's the question. Let's say that, uh, I mean, we're all we can all sort of agree, I think, knowing the three of you as I do, that it's not that there's no natural right that the United States has to intervene around the world whenever and wherever we want. We're not the police force of the world. This is not this is not justified in any morally. You can't make any moral argument to defend this right now. Let's just say that through some magical uh, instance of magic, the four of us are now like top positions in the US government. Right. Mm -hmm. We're like we, we call the shots now. And, um, something comes up where some, some dictator halfway around the world is threatening to like bomb his own population. And we have the potential to, uh, to, to, end it. All we got to do is, you know, bomb, bomb these, uh, you know, bomb his military supply centers and cut them off. We could do that now. Like we, we think this is something that's worth doing. We don't think that it's morally right that we have the power to do that. But then we we have it. That's the reality. So if we have that power, whether we got it justly or not, do we have a responsibility to use that power? I mean, what's the
3: alternative, right? Yeah.
2: I mean, with great power comes great responsibility. Thank Uh, you. I was waiting for someone to say say that.
3: Diminishing (laughs) box office returns.
2: Spider-Man.
1: Once again, the second one was good and the third one was terrible. Anyway, sorry, go (laughs) ahead. The
2: rule of trilogies. But but the point I was going to make is that this argument is... It's kind of like the, um, the, oh, if you had to torture one person to save 10,000 people, would you torture that guy? Um, no, it's, it's guy not like that, that, kind that at of, all. No, 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 Follow me out here.
3: Go? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, We'll let both kind of, of your unlikely situations play out.
2: Thank you. Um, but I mean, I think part of it is maybe actually a, a better analogy is to like the Wall Street bailouts um, in that we it got to this point where when you know all these firms failed they threatened to like destroy the world economy like completely instead of only mostly like they did and and the justification for the bailout was like, like you know they're too big to fail and that sort of thing and so the question was at this time what do you do but the answer really was 50 years ago and leaning on upwards you regulate them so that this doesn't happen and this is the sort of thing now like you get this question but the real answer is is what we do now is we stop funding the many dictatorships we're funding and then we don't have this problem in the future, right? And I get that that kind of skirts the question, but the problem is what we've done is we've set up the world in such a way that military answers are seen and presented as the only viable option and until we start to think about the future and think of ways to not be in this situation again, like we seem to be in every five years now, then it's always just going to be like, well, we have to bomb these people because the dictator who was a friend of ours until last year is using all the bombs we gave him to bomb his own people now. And so my solution isn't to invade Libya. My solution is to say, quit giving bombs to Saudi Arabia. Right. But yeah, but that's 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 I
1: I, uh, I agree. That's not a solution to Libya, though. That's a solution to something that could happen in five or ten years. And, yeah, we should be doing it. And, yeah, if we could go back in time, we should change a lot of things we've done. But that's not a solution to what's happening in Libya. To to say, well, we're going to do things differently in Saudi Arabia.
0: That doesn't help Libya. Yeah, it's a systemic solution to an immediate problem. And And it's not really going to address that immediate problem at all. It's going to be like, well, in 50 years, the world system will be much more stable and secure. And this is just the cost of it. Like, that just, I would think, would strike certain people as cold. You know, like, well, okay, that's a nice calculation that you're doing. But well, if you have... The- yeah, but I think
2: you could also say that, like, we're going to come in and take out Qaddafi and probably kill many of those people that we're supposedly defending, too. And you could argue that logic is pretty cold as well.
1: Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not saying... All I'm saying is this. I, I think you're right to the extent... You're completely right to the extent that the space that the, the, the you know the space for talking about these things in our uh, our culture is totally biased towards what do we do now and, like, forget about those long-term questions as soon as we fix what we got to do now and then we don't do anything about the long-term fix. And I think that's where you're totally right, right? I'm just saying it makes... Th- there's a tension between here's the reality of what's happening, here's the situation today, and here's where we are, what's morally and legally and politically responsible to do versus... And then how much priority do we give that versus, like, you know, setting up completely different systems long-term?
0: Yeah, see, I think that's a sociological paradox in a way because, like, we always come back to it, I think, by our training is that, like, the immediate actions perpetuate the systems that, like, that we don't agree with. You know, playing the rules of the game, uh, the rules of the game of unstable world systems where the strong bully the less strong like if we just perpetuate that system then the system's never going to change and it requires like a different orientation but like those systemic solutions i think um are easier stated than actually like done and it requires somebody who has the ability to do something not to do it and then like um be somewhat heard about it and I think like, that's the thing it's like, and I think it's funny, I was actually talking to my brother about this, about uh, ethnography and how when people go and do ethnographies of an organization, it's easy to critique the CEO of the why the CEO is behaving a certain way and is perpetuating the system that they're stuck in. But if you're actually in that CEO's position and you actually feel the pressures that he, he has... Um, you can actually see that he 's his immediate concerns are really with his company and keeping the people that he 's working with employed and right, less right. less less more the kind of broad systemic issues that he 's involved in, and a good ethnographer needs not only to go in and like report on the hypocrisy that the c e o is doing but like the actual pressures that he feels, and that might actually require the ethnographer to actually partake in doing some of the organization 's functions to actually feel those pressures Um,
3: that's getting closer to the point that i started out with it's jesse's argument with all due respect to it because it's a good argument and i agree with a lot of it it's it's one of those moral and political arguments that does a lot to explain jesse's position but doesn't do a lot to explain why the event is happening the little historical hook of u.s involvement over the last 50 years starts to explain it but then that's not the main thrust of the argument In order to explain why these things happen, it's that cultural understanding of – and a a knowledge-based understanding Uh of the people who make the decisions to do it. One of the most –
2: the conversations that I appreciated the most
3: about the lead-up to the Iraq War was not Bush is bad, we shouldn't be doing this, but people pointing at specific people within the Department of Defense and the State Department saying those are the people who are going to make this war happen not the president it's going to be this these certain cultures within these departments that are going to give all the evidence have all the the decision-making power in those institutions and organizations and i think what happened bore that analysis out that those people did take control of the situation well that same thing is happening in libya we're just not as aware of the people involved but there are people who decided that this was the approach we were going to take and the important thing is to understand why they decided that was the approach and it comes down to the things where i think john was leading us like we have these resources to apply to this problem are we not going to use force if that might be the best thing because they move from a place where force is an option that might be very effective they move from a place that doesn't consider or considers a certain you know calculation of civilian casualties that are acceptable and if we want to understand what they're doing and have a more nuanced response to it, those are the kind of decisions I think we need to be aware of. That should be part oh, well, see, of the discussion. There's your problem,
2: Chris. I don't, I, don't, I don't want a nuanced conversation of it. I think I made my point about nuance thoroughly <laughs> clear over the course of this podcast. All right. It,
0: it kind of reminds me a little bit when I was in Brazil a few years back and people were – whenever I go to Brazil, people like to give me a hard time about being American and why the U.S. is such a – Bully imperialistic power, especially during the Bush years. I found myself always having to defend our imperialistic uh, endeavors. Um, but uh, so that's where it comes from. Why? Why do you do that? See, that's what I don't <laughs> get. Like, why do you feel obligated to defend?
3: I mean, like, where is that? Arturo's on from? the take, man.
0: Well, okay. Like, I remember, like, like we were intervening in Colombia, and I was like, yeah, we shouldn't be there. It's going to be the other Vietnam. We never really heard about the interventions in Colombia last couple years but we were we were there and iraq was a big issue but then afghanistan and um this brazilian was giving me a hard time and at one point he said i mean it's it's not even like a fair fight you guys don't even pick fair fights and i remember going this isn't about a fair fight (laughs) i mean if you have the ability to overtake a country you just do that's how histories of all countries have all have always uh gone and you know brazil doesn't really have a strong imperial force and so it's easy to stand back and say well look at you guys are picking these really weak countries to bully around but this is exactly what you guys would be doing too if you had the resources to do that i mean brazil has been imperialistic with its neighbors in the past as well and like it's just uh i think having the resources to do it kind of puts things in a different light I mean, why i'd end up defending imperialistic actions? I'm not quite sure, but <laughs> but you see that there get, is I
3: mean, a defense that's not necessarily we're going to destroy them under yeah, yeah, our eye yeah. and grip, but yes, there are reasons they've come to accept that make sense in their world to do what they're doing
0: yes yes and and, and that it's like it's not because Americans like to bully people like that's what people would ask me like do Americans are they just bully people? I mean do they are you these big guys you in, punched the them in the face when they ask you that <laughs> They also ask Germans up. about Hitler, which I, I think it's always inappropriate. Yeah. Like, the, the, <laughs> the first thing they ask, because I was there with these, Brazilian, or these German tourists, and they ask me about Bush, and then they turn around and ask them about Hitler. And I'm <laughs> like, that just seems a little not very classy.